Hi, everyone. Laszlo Montgomery again, coming your way, as always, from the ChinaHistoryPodcast.com. But not every week, as advertised. Lightning strikes twice, and once again, we're a couple weeks in between episodes. My uh, apologies for that. After our little Xi Jinping interlude, we're heading back to the Silk Road to see what else there is to know. In the first part of this Silk Road series, we did that general overview of the geography of the Silk Road and who the major players were. Our focus was mainly on the early years, particularly during the Han Dynasty. We looked mainly at the trade of luxury goods and other kinds of products, and we took another look at the always entertaining and awe-inspiring life of Zheng Qian. But the Silk Road... It was more than a trade route. It was the main conduit for ideas and information that went back and forth between the Far East and the Far West. These ideas included everything Buddhism had to offer, as well as the introduction of other religions. Today, we're focusing more on the religious aspect of how important the Silk Road was to the uh, spread of Buddhism in China. But as far as a mechanism to move all the great ideas and knowledge back and forth between East and West, the Silk Roads and all these centers of commerce and learning in, in Tashkent, Samarkand, and Balkh, Khotan, Kashgar, Turfan, Merv, Bukhara, ideas spread from place to place. And after hundreds of years, these places on opposite sides of the known world and in between their ideas got passed back and forth, and everything fed on everything, so that by this period, mid-7th century, you'll see mankind really kicks into a higher gear as far as the time in between great events brought on by new ideas and innovations. To me, the commercial aspect of the Silk Road really played a secondary role to the importance of the Silk Road as the main east-west-south pipeline for the dissemination of information, in ways of looking at and understanding things. In this episode, we look at another Silk Road hero. This one, maybe, is the most interesting one of all. Today, we're going to focus on the legendary Buddhist monk Xuanzang. Xuanzang lived during the reign of China's greatest emperor. Well, top two or three, maybe, arguably. This was the early Tang Dynasty emperor and co-founder Tang Taizong, Yes, the great Li Shermin, son of Li Yuan, who founded the Tang and reigned as Tang Gaozu. The Tang peaks twice, once under Tang Taizong and once under Tang Xuanzong, the latter, again, of the voluptuous Yang Guifei fame. Emperor Tang Taizong was born in 599, and Xuanzang was born in 602. They were roughly the same age. So this is one of the many interesting elements that makes Xuanzang more than just your average interesting character from Chinese history. His life was very much tied to his contemporary, Tang Taizong. They knew each other well. The Taizong Emperor, he was a major force of nature, and may I say, not a particularly big fan of Buddhism. But he sure liked Xuanzang, who it said became sort of a spiritual advisor to the emperor during the Taizong emperor's last years. Well, let's just go straight to the big elephant in the room and just point to it and get it out of the way. 
Xuanzang, besides the entirety of his contribution to translating, disseminating, and popularizing Buddhist scriptures and living this incredible life of perilous journeys, self-sacrifice, devotion to learning, that aside, he's perhaps best known in the Chinese-speaking world as the inspiration and, in fact, one of the main characters in Wu Cheng'en's 16th century literary classic, Journey to the West, or Xi Ji. It is his character, the monk, who Sun Wukong accompanies in this great folk epic. And, of course, along the way, they run into the pig, Zhu Wunang, and Sha Wu Jing, the, the Hui Li character. We'll get to him in a second. This novel along with The Romance of the Three Kingdoms, Dream of the Red Chamber, and Water Margin, make up the four great classical novels of Chinese literature. The Sita Ming Zhu. I don't know, maybe you have to throw in uh, Jinping Mei also, The Golden Lotus. Journey to the West is the fictionalized version of Xuanzang's 16-year journey, which took place between 629 and 645. We'll leave Journey to the West to a later podcast. Suffice to say, our hero, Xuanzang, slipped out of Chang'an against the orders of the Emperor Taizong and headed west along the Silk Road, and he visited all the same stops along the road that countless other travelers and traders visited since probably the time of Alexander the Great. This journey took Xuanzang from Chang'an to India. He traveled extensively and went as far south as Tamil Nadu, Madras, Chennai. His, his travels and commentaries were written down as demanded by the emperor and have come down to us today as the Da Tang Xiu Ji, or the Great Tang Record on the Western Regions. A lot of his writings were part of the treasure trove discovered in the caves at Dunhuang, to supplement and complement Xuanzang's own story was another record of what happened, this one by the monk Hui Li. Hui Li's Life of Xuanzang also chronicles the journey he made as well as Xuanzang's whole background. Hui Li is a whole other story, but let's just say he accompanies Xuanzang quite extensively throughout his life. As I said, the Sha Wu Jing character from Journey to the West is based on Xuanzang's trusty aide-de-camp, Hui Li. So Xuanzang, he did a lot in his 62 years on this planet. His very well-known and sincere devotion to his religion was rivaled only by his profound commitment to Buddhist scholarship and bringing to Chinese Buddhists the wisdom that had previously been available only in Sanskrit and other ancient Indian languages. He also leaves a rich legacy in presenting... Chinese culture to an admiring audience. There's more to China than the Great Wall, the Grand Canal, the amazing palaces and scenery. Xuanzang served as a very capable ambassador to disseminate many of the ideas, customs, and ways of doing things that were commonplace in China. He was the right man at the right time to present this rich culture to an accepting audience. Let's start at the beginning and get our bearings as far as where we are in China. We know the Tang begins so around 618 after the fall of the Sui dynasty. And the Sui, of course, they were the ones, Emperor Wen and Emperor Yang, they unified China, first time since the Han, and brought 
order out of chaos, and their achievements prime the pump for the tongue. But the important part, as far as our little story is concerned, is that these two emperors, they were big supporters of Buddhism, but not for the obvious reasons. To Emperor Wen and Yang of Sui, they saw Buddhist monks and clergy as useful tools in their political games with the Confucian bureaucrat elites. So the Sui dynasty, it not only made everything smooth and nice for the Tang politically, but for Buddhism in China as well. From the start of the Tang for a good hundred years, there's a nice golden age that happens for Buddhism in China. Then there's some trouble after Wu Zetian, but once the Emperor Xuanzong begins his reign, the Tang has another, even more golden of an age, and then the Anlushan Rebellion happens, and so much for the Tang. All good things come to an end. Now this is a little confusing. Our subject today is Xuanzang. That's second tone, fourth tone, for all you Mandarin speakers out there. But you also have the emperor who I just mentioned, Xuanzong. Those two names, Xuanzang and Xuanzong, sound very familiar, and both were Tang Dynasty historical personages. But different tones, different pinyin, only separated by a single letter. I've read that uh, Xuanzang was born near Luoyang, uh, as well as in Sichuan, but all accounts agree he was born in the year 602. He was born in a not particularly well-to-do family and went back for generations and had spawned one Confucian scholar after another. Writings have indicated that Xuanzang was in every way an exceptional child with regard to his seriousness about learning and understanding the world around him. His older brother had entered a Buddhist monastery, and young Xuanzang seemed at an early age desirous to follow in his brother's footsteps. So off he went to a monastery in Luoyang, and from that point on his life was essentially devoted to Buddhism and finding the truth and preserving it for others. Cream always rises to the top, and in no time at all, Xuanzang had made his way to the Temple of Great Learning in the capital in Chang'an. These monks at this temple primarily devoted themselves to translating the great books from India. And it was here where Xuanzang was trained in translation and interpretation. It was also within this community of monks that Xuanzang gained that itch to travel and seek out wisdom firsthand. Of the two main branches of Buddhism, Mahayana and Theravada, Xuanzang embraced the former. By 622, he became a fully ordained monk. Now, this was the year he set out on his journey, as well as the year the Prophet Muhammad fled Mecca north to Medina. The Silk Road now, at this juncture, has about 100 years before it gets turned on its head. That's all for a future episode. If you recall, in the Christian world, we had the Council of Nicaea in 325. This would be in uh, present-day Iznik in Turkey, not too far south of uh, Istanbul. This council was held to sort of get everyone to agree on all things related to Christian doctrine and faith, because by this time, 4th century, it was hard to make sense of everything. So much had been lost, so many teachings corrupted or changed or bastardized. Constantine I, the great one, uh, he called this meeting and he was determined to get to the bottom of what was what. And of course, you know, everything got all sorted out. 
and so it was with Buddhism and Buddhist scriptures. By the 5th or 6th centuries in China, it was hard to make heads or tails of what was true and what wasn't. The earliest writings that had made it to China, the translations were hardly reliable, and all kinds of liberties had been taken to mold the sutras to fit you know, the Chinese sensibilities of the 2nd, 3rd, and 4th centuries. And so this became the whole raison d'etre of Xuanzang's journey or pilgrimage. Xuanzang made the decision that in order to satisfy his yearning for truth and clarity in Buddhist teachings, he was going to go to India himself, where it all began, and seek out these original Buddhist scriptures, translate them, study them, and accumulate as much as possible, and then bring everything back to China. Now, Xuanzang was not the first person to come up with this brainy idea. Before Xuanzang, there was Fa Xian from the Eastern Jin period. The Eastern Jin ran from 317 to 420, concurrent with the miserable 16 kingdoms and six dynasties period in China. Fa Xian made that journey first with an entourage traveling from China to Nepal, where he visited the city of Lumbini, where Siddhartha Gautama, the Buddha, was born in the mid to late 6th century BC. From there, he went on to India and Sri Lanka. Fashian was the first one to leave behind a reliable record of his journey from 399 to 412. It's called A Record of Buddhist Kingdoms. The travels of Fashian were well known and well documented at the time. The entirety of his account has survived to this day. The golden age of these Buddhist pilgrimages to India ran from the end of the 4th century, all the way to the beginning of the 9th. And 260 AD is as far back as the record goes, as far as you know, Chinese traveling to the Buddhist sources in India. There isn't much of a reliable record until about the 5th century, which is when these pilgrimages became more frequent. From 200, 300, 400, all the way up to the 9th century, this period saw an explosion of back-and-forth travel between China and India. These Chinese Buddhist pilgrims pretty much made it their mission to track down every single crumb of Buddhist wisdom and bring everything back to China. Between 500 and 900, essentially everything of a Buddhist nature that ever came out of India had already been translated retranslated, documented, commented on, and printed on paper. The wealth of writings that were produced and which survived to this day is amazing. Everything dug out of Dunhuang and made available to the world by Orlstein, all of that, it was all written during this 400-year golden time, during the Tang, the Five Dynasties, and into the Song. And of course, under the Mongols, of the Yuan Dynasty, well, let's just say the uh, share prices in Buddhism take a major dive in the market. And it wasn't just written works that came out of this period. Buddhist art and architecture enjoyed a heyday, and we're all fortunate that many of these cave paintings, giant statues, and architectural wonders still survive today, like Fashian and many others before him. Xuanzang's journey to India required him to walk the Silk Road. 
The Silk Road was not only an artery that brought trade back and forth between China and the rest of Asia, it was also the main pathway for Buddhist pilgrims making the trek to India. Chinese Buddhists had been traveling this route to India since the 2nd century AD, and uh, Fa Xian took the Silk Road to India and returned to China by sea. And the horrors of Fa Xian's return voyage by sea and what he had to go through were well known to Xuanzang. So no matter what, when he made his journey, he was determined to make the trek on dry land and avoid the uh, watery route. Xuanzang's journey to India took him along the northern route, again, which was south of the Tian Shan and north of the Taklamakan Desert. And like most all travelers, all roads led to the oasis town of Kashgar, which is located in westernmost Xinjiang, Kashgar, a town in the news this past week. From Kashgar, the monk Xuanzang went on to Tashkent and Samarkand, and like many Buddhist pilgrims before and after, he made that turn to the south towards Kashmir and from there into the heart of India. Xuanzang took the northern Silk Road out of China, and after all those years of travel, when he returned to China, he did it via the southern route, which rimmed the south of the Taklamakan Desert. Now, part of the legend of Xuanzang, one of the many little things that make this story what it is, was that when Xuanzang decided to make his long pilgrimage to find the original Buddhist texts and sort out all the confusion, there was a travel ban in place. Yes, the emperor himself, as I said, Tang Taizong, he had issued an edict that restricted travel outside of China, specifically the kind uh, Xuanzang wanted to take. In defiance of this edict, and after receiving the omens he was looking for, Xuanzang quietly left Chang'an and began heading west along the superhighway of its day, the Hexi Zolang, also known as the Gansu Corridor. It was the logical route from China proper into the Central Asian landmass. He set his sights first on the city of Lanzhou, capital of Gansu province, and once named in some recent poll as the most polluted city in the world, which made it also the most polluted city in China, I guess. This was a few years ago, I recall. I don't know if it's better or worse today. But Lanzhou is sort of in the middle of this elongated province, Gansu. Xuanzang stayed at one of many Buddhist monasteries there for about a month, and he created quite a sensation there and began to establish his reputation as an interpreter of texts and for his wisdom. Sooner or later, the emperor's people out there you know, in so many words, said, hey, you know, what are you doing way out here? You know, what part of the emperor's edict, you know, didn't you understand? So once he was found out and came under some heat, Xuanzang laid low and traveled by night and hid by day until, with the help of many Buddhist followers along the way, he made his way to the Yuman Pass, the Jade Gate, the Yuman Guan. This gate built during the reign of who else, but the great Chinese emperor Han Wu Di, whose ruins still stand today, just west of the important Silk Road town of Dunhuang. This was the symbolic end of China. Once you walked through this jade gate heading west, you officially ventured out into the great unknown. Off you went. The safe part of the Silk Road was now behind you. Nothing except the Taklamakan Desert in front of you.
Xuanzang passed through this gate, and there were still several you know, Chinese sentries posted along the road beyond the Jade Gate, but Xuanzang stealthily avoided them. Mind you, this is not a pleasant walk through a wooded forest. This was a rough, barren terrain. One horse had already died under him, but Xuanzang was able to procure another, as well as a guide who had supposedly made the trip before along the Silk Road. But as the legend goes, this guide who Xuanzang had met up with and who said he you know, would lead him to his destination, he ended up trying to kill Xuanzang and snuck up on him one night, knife in hand. But as the story goes, Xuanzang at once, seeing his predicament, appealed to the Bodhisattva Guanyin and uttered some scripture. And to his amazement, Xuanzang's guide put his knife down and returned to his mat to go back to sleep. After a few nights of this, Xuanzang got the hint and then sent this guy away and made a secret middle-of-the-night getaway, and off he went into the vast desert wilderness by himself. Read his book, The Tang Record on the Western Regions for All the Minutia. In this early part of his odyssey, the desert climate threw everything it had at Xuanzang, and the chronicle of his suffering is woeful indeed. But his faith and devotion, as well as his horse's nose for where the next well was, got him through the worst of everything. And despite deprivations and suffering that would have felled an average man, Xuanzang made it to the site of the next town named Gaocheng. This place was just to the south of the well-known oasis town of Turfan. And this is all in the Silk Road portion of Xinjiang province. By this time... 7th century AD. The Silk Roads are not as mysterious and threatening as they were in the Han Dynasty days. And a lot of Buddhist traffic had passed going to and coming from Chang'an. Xuanzang, by this time, had already gained a following and reputation in the Buddhist world. So this, this local headman of Gaochang, you know, which included Turfan, he hears of Xuanzang's arrival and is so elated and, you know, when Xuanzang arrives, he really gives him the hard sell about, you know, settling permanently in Gaochang and using that place as a base from which to study and teach the scriptures. So under duress, Xuanzang agrees to stay for a month. And when he carries out his end of the bargain, the headman or king of this region, he sets Xuanzang up right proper and he gives him all the necessary comforts of travel, new garments, boots, plenty of coin of the realm, horses, transport, and a couple dozen servants. The memories of his adventure through the desert from Lanzhou to Gaochang is now nothing but a memory. He's now the 7th century equivalent of flying in the front of the plane. And off he goes, following the paths of the Silk Road that countless others before him had walked, rimming the north of the Taklamakan Desert till he arrives at Kashgar, then setting off for Tashkent and on to Samarkand. He also encounters and spends a good deal of time in the company of the Western Turks and their great Khan, Yehu. This leader, Yehu Khan, really took a liking to Xuanzang and tried to keep him for his very own. Xuanzang's observations that he made as he traveled through Sagdia and Bactria clearly show that all the way up to this point, mid-7th century, 
Central Asia was still a very Buddhist place. But that wasn't going to last for long, though. Once in Samarkand, the Sogdian heartland, the Pamirs, the Pamir mountain chain, was, it was already out of the way. And one could then make a beeline straight south into the Indian subcontinent. The Silk Road brought you to the key market towns and Buddhist centers of Balkh, Bamiyan, Hada, and Peshawar, the gateway to the Indus River Valley. Now I say these are Buddhist centers, even though the names of these places, Kabul, Peshawar, Srinagar, in our 21st century minds, Buddhism isn't exactly what we think of in those parts of the world. So in this time, when Xuanzang is just about to arrive in India, it's about eight years after the Hijra. So Islam is only just getting started right about this time. Some of you might recall the pre-9-11 days back in March of 2001, the Taliban leader called for the destruction of the magnificent Buddhist statues at Bamiyan. Those statues had stood there since 502 AD, and Xuanzang himself, not to mention Faxian before him, saw these statues themselves with their own eyes and all their glory when they were passing through. Anyways, they stood there for over 15 centuries before the Taliban had them dynamited on orders from no less a person than Mullah Omar himself. I'm sure everyone remembers that bit of news from 11 years ago. Just trying to put that all in perspective for this little episode. So pretty soon, Islam is going to knock on Central Asia's door and things are never going to be the same again. And all of this has a huge impact on the rhythm of the Silk Road and the established ways of doing things. Well, 16 years after he left China, Xuanzang made his way back to Chang'an. Francis Wood's Silk Road book that I used for Podcast 74 described the mother load that he returned with. She said he carried six Buddhist figures of gold, silver, and sandalwood and scriptures contained in 657 volumes that were carried on the backs of 20 horses. This was everything there was from seven of the main schools of Buddhist thought. I give you their names, but I wouldn't do the Sanskrit justice. So by my rough calculation, that's about a 40-foot container load that Xuanzang came back with. So part of the legend of Xuanzang concerns his triumphant return in 645 to Chang'an, bringing with him all these Buddhist treasures that were going to play such a big part in stoking the fires of Tang Dynasty Buddhism. The interesting part concerns the contrast between his, you know, triumphant return and Xuanzang's stealthy departure from China in defiance of the great emperor Tang Taizong's edict that put a temporary ban on travel. So he snuck out of town in the middle of the night, but now he was coming back with this, you know, magnificent public display. And he was personally welcomed back by the Taizong emperor, who was still very much in power. And for the remainder of his days... Xuanzang devoted himself to his faith, translating many of the works he carted back from India, as well as writing his personal history, the Xiyu Ji, or Great Tang Record on the Western Regions. Again, this book was written in Xuanzang's hand 
by royal command of the emperor himself. And this work survives to this day. So we have Xuanzang's personal account of his trials and tribulations. And like I said, we also have corroborating evidence from his loyal assistant, Hui Li, who wrote his version of events. And also painted on the walls of caves in Dunhuang are depictions of Xuanzang's return to Chang'an. It really happened, folks. No one's making this stuff up. For those 16 years on the road, he spent a great deal of time living and studying at many of the great centers of Buddhism in India. He traveled all over and spent most of his time on the road, and he's said to have traveled about 15,000 kilometers, going as far south, like I said, as to uh, Tamil Nadu. Not that she wasn't popular already, but Xuanzang did much to popularize the Bodhisattva Guanyin, and his devotion to Guanyin was well known. She became more and more popular to the Chinese who sort of adopted her as their own. And she remains popular to this day as the goddess of mercy. So Xuanzang turned down offers to join the imperial inner circle and opted instead to establish a base of operations from which to carry out his scholarly pursuits. And this place where he served out his days is none other than the Great Pagoda of the Wild Goose, the Dayanta, erected during the reign of Taizong's son and successor, Tang Gaozong. It is located in Xi'an, which back then, of course, was called Chang'an. This is where most all the swag Xuanzong had brought back from India was kept. And here he set himself up, patronized to the gills, translating Buddhist works and spreading the word. This five-story pagoda, built in 652, it initially fell into disrepair and got a once-over under Wu Zetian. You all remember her, podcast CHP 7. She fixed it up, and it made it all the way to the Ming Dynasty, where it got another fixing up. And then in 1964, in between the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution, it had yet another renovation. So go see it one day. It offers you nice views of the historic city of Xi'an. It was easy now, you know, printing, paper, you know, making books. By the 640s, 650s, it was all old hat to the Chinese. All this new technology, it all came perfectly just in time to efficiently get the word out in a mass way. And we could see how, you know, Gutenberg, eight centuries after Xuanzang, how important printing was to the spread of Christianity. It was the exact same thing with Buddhism in the early part of the uh, Tang period. With the printed word, scripture, as well as the interpretation of scripture, as well as news and information, it traveled a lot faster than ever before in history. Xuanzang was one of the earliest beneficiaries of these two of the four great inventions. That was a topic we looked at in the CHP number three episode. Xuanzang outlived his benefactor, the Taizong Emperor, and when Tang Gaozong became the emperor in 649, he declared Xuanzang the jewel of the empire. And just as his predecessor, the Taizong Emperor, did, the Gaozong Emperor made sure there was always enough money to support all the endeavors of Xuanzang. Xuanzang's legacy, along with uh, Kumarajiva, translator of the Lotus and Diamond Sutras, known as Zhou Mo Luo Shi, who lived 344 to 413, 
Xuanzang's impact on Buddhism and Buddhist thought, it knew no rivals. No one translated more books on Buddhism than Xuanzang. In Toto, he is credited with uh, 72 works that were printed on more than a thousand scrolls. But again, it is the book, Journey to the West, Xiyou Ji, that he is best remembered. It was his spectacular journey and the magical accounts of it that he wrote about in his travelogue that inspired this great work. And for the importance of this work in the whole of Chinese culture, Xuanzang is best remembered. So, thanks for listening once again. Keep those emails and topic ideas coming. I just changed over to a new server, so the recent problems we've been having with that iTunes feed should be behind us once and for all, I hope. And like I've been falsely promising for so long, I do plan to get all those enhancements done on the website. I know a lot of you are asking about listing all the spelling and Chinese characters for all the names of places, events, and people in each episode. Rest assured, it's coming, along with everything else. For now, I'm sorry you're just stuck with uh, only these MP3s. This is Laszlo Montgomery wishing all of you the very best. I'm back home in Claremont and hoping to keep it that way. But as of yesterday morning, I'm seeing the storm clouds starting to gather and I smell a spate of East Coast trips ahead of me towards the latter half of this month. Thanks for listening to this episode of the China History Podcast. Take care, all.